It is so ironic that Charles wasn't, there was never a, an idea that he could marry Camilla. And instead, you know, he was sort of made really to marry Diana. Nothing could have been a worse mistake on their part. My next and final guest of the third act needs no introduction. Tina Brown is the trailblazing dynamo and former editor of Tatler, Vanity Fair and The New Yorker, famous for bringing that heady mix of the high-low to magazine content, that irresistible juxtaposition of glamour and gossip with serious investigative long-form journalism. Her latest book on the Royals Palace Papers was revelatory and brilliantly researched but even she couldn't predict the seismic changes of the past year. The death of the Queen, a coronation, fresh mudslinging from some familiar members of the family. On the eve of her launch of the Truth Teller Summit in investigative journalism, I am stunned here by her own unflinching gaze as we look back over the trajectory of a stellar career that isn't over yet. Welcome, Tina. Nice to see you on my screen or hear you on my headphones or whatever, but nice to be with you. It's lovely to see you, Tina. I, we really all believe that the Queen was invincible, immortal, didn't we? We really did, actually. But, you know, I did expect more of a kind of cosmic shake, rattle and roll when she died. I thought that would be a kind of explosion of panic. But interestingly, you know, people sort of responded as she would have decreed they responded, which is with great dignity, appropriate mourning, and a sense of huge kind of reverence and respect. So it wasn't a hysterical greeting of her death. It was really this massive sort of national obeisance to what she had, and gratitude to uh, what she had given the nation for 70 years. And perhaps the point is also that King Charles's views that were considered sort of wacky and off kilter now dovetail so extraordinarily with the zeitgeist, don't they? Well, they do. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, Charles is the transition. I mean, no corporate transition that I can think of, certainly in the last 20 years, has been, you know, was so as seamless as Charles's, uh, you know, ascendance to the monarchy that, and, you know, and the job which he'd thought about for the last sort of 40 years at any rate. So, yeah, the transition was marvellously handled. It was just flawless, the whole thing. And as a result, I mean, he had a great, I think, sort of first few months as, as king. Even with the sort of onslaught of Harry, he's really kind of sailed through it, actually. Very, very well indeed, which I think is a great sign. And in fact, in a way, he was slightly helped by the chaos in the Tory party with the two different prime ministers coming and going and the whole uproar. Because all of a sudden, there was Charles suddenly looking like you know, Europe's elder statesman, the only kind of grown-up in the room who understood, you know, all of the, th the threats of the environment, of the, you know, foreign affairs and so on. The man has actually met with every single foreign leader for the last, you know, decades and decades. So he's enormously well-versed in statescraft, actually. And it, you know, all of this became very clear, I think, in the last few months. And I suppose with his, his environmentalism, his uh, car running on whey and wine, he was ahead of the curve. But now... Now his views chime, don't they? Well, it's kind of one of the ironies of Charles that because he seemed, because of his manner and his upbringing and his whole sort of affect, is so fogeyish. But actually, he's like a secret hippie, really. I mean, at the end of the day, he's, you know, the things he cares about, you know, interfaith initiatives, obviously passionately, you know, the worries about climate change and, 
you know, he's very sort of, you know, innovative organic farming methods. I mean, he's turned out to be an extraordinarily good businessman, actually, for his own sort of sustainable business with the Duchy of Cornwall. So all of these things, actually, yeah, he, he's been, he's actually, weirdly, a, a cutting edge figure, Charles. And I think, I don't know whether he'll ever really be sort of as understood and as appreciated, of course, as he hankers to be. But I think that it's coming to people to realise that, you know, we've actually been rather lucky with Charles all these years. I love the the detail you go into and, and your turn of phrase. I love your the royals as highborn scaffolding holding up the House of Windsor and the antiquated <laughs> ideals of monarchy. And the you know the idea of uh, what Meghan has to look forward to at a palace party, the 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 rooting for for truffles in a forest of bad teeth. <laughs> <laughs> that was a little. I know that was a little. That was a little damning, I guess. But yes, well, I mean, you know, it's it's not for the faint-hearted to join the monarchy's circle, particularly if you're an American actress who's absolutely un, you know, has no experience of that enormously sort of inbred world that she suddenly found herself in. Uh, so I don't, I mean, I must say, I don't think anybody would relish it very much. But they've managed to sort of close it up and sail on. I'm I'm, I'm kind of impressed with how they've handled all of the uh, turbulence of the uh, Sussex Rebellion. So you think the, the future of the monarchy is, is secure for the moment? Well, you know, I, I actually would not like to bet that necessarily. I mean, I think it's certainly going well at the moment. But, you know, we live in a world of a huge volatility. Nothing is a given. I think it matters very much how the occupants of the throne behave in a way that it really hasn't mattered for the last thousand years. I mean, in the last thousand years, the king was the king. There was the obviously the abdication of Edward VIII. You know, one shudders to think what would have happened if he hadn't abdicated, given that he was a sort of Nazi collaborator and, <laughs> and he was such a feckless, hopeless individual. But, you know, that did happen and he went and we instead got the remarkably uh, sound and sane, you know, George VI. But I think Charles is going to comport himself, you know, in a very dignified fashion. I mean, I think if, if and it won't happen because it seems to me that uh, they are two people who've really kind of uh, stepped up to their role. But I mean, a lot depends now on the, the Prince and Princess of Wales. You know, I mean, if one of them suddenly said, you know what, I, I'm out, you know, I, <laughs> I've decided that I don't want to be. Uh, here. Uh, I think that would be a very, very uh, traumatic moment for the monarchy, you know. So it all depends now on the sort of how they handle it, because the Queen has really made that role such a matter of how the monarch behaves, essentially. I think your um, your admiration and sympathy for certain members of the royal family shine through. The Camilla's authenticity, I think uh, I'm right in saying that you you related to, you, you enjoyed her. I do. I mean, I, I've always rather liked Camilla. But as I got to write the uh, Palace Papers, I really got to like Camilla because I think that she is really sort of a sound, sane, funny, decent, actually, in, in a way that people just haven't really given her the credit for. I mean, they're starting to. But she is a, a person really who's actually, when you consider it, absolutely tailor-made for this role. I mean, it is so ironic that Charles wasn't, you know, there was never a, an idea that he could marry Camilla and instead, you know, he was sort of made really to marry Diana. Nothing could have been a worse mistake on their part because Camilla, had he married her, would have been an absolutely sort of flawless princess of Wales, you know, uh, probably adored from the beginning. But obviously, you know, Diana turned into this extraordinary sort of comet who hit the royal family like a, a meteor, essentially. So it, it's ironic that he wasn't allowed to marry the person who actually would have done, from their point of view, 
would have been a far more safe pair of hands. Mm, you're so right. Well, so you predicted a kind of identity crisis with the death of the Queen that perhaps hasn't happened, as you suggest. No, I think it. I, I think it didn't really happen. There was a political identity crisis, I, uh, ironically, with the sort of two prime ministers going in and out, but not really uh, yet, at any rate. The uh, you know, with regard to the monarchy, but you know, things can change very quickly. It depends. I mean, I think. There are a lot of challenges that face Charles. Who knows what those will be as well. But Tina, to to move into sort of more personal waters, the death of your own beloved soulmate, as you've described him, the great Sir Harold Evans, the fearless game-changing editor of the Sunday Times, publisher of Random House and editor of Reuters, and my own um, husband's, Don McCullen's boss and mentor for many years, that, that was nearly three years ago, I think. And... I'm I'm very interested in to how as to how someone you've been married to very successfully for forty years, who you were one half of the powerhouse couple, as you were described. Does the sense of self shift, and do you have a sort of mini identity crisis as well? Definitely. I mean, no. I, I you know, for honestly, for for it really left me feeling really unmoored for a long time, you know, and still ha- does many a lot. But obviously, you gradually get used to um, the strange business of being alone, you know. And, uh, you know, one of the things when you're with somebody you adore and who's a soulmate is you never feel you have to, quote, make plans, right? I mean, you you know, the plan was just to hang out together and always was. And we did. And so when he's not there to hang out with, which is, you know, the case now, you know, there's a huge feeling, giant void there that that has been very, very difficult. But, you know... All that can happen is time passes. I mean, it happened just in the middle of COVID. He didn't die of COVID, but, you know, it, it was all that strange lockdown time. So essentially, I sort of went off to uh, Los Angeles. or You know, I rented a house just to get away, essentially, from familiar things that made me sad and uh, rented a house in California with my two kids and uh, sort of worked on my book there. And I just sort of hid in the book. I mean, you know, the pa- I was gl- grateful for the Palace Papers, actually, because the deadline was continually pushing at me, and uh, it was a good thing to have something to hide in. So you described him as your greatest editor, so you must have felt his absence every day. Every day. It took it took about five people to do what Harry did. <laughs> I had a little circle of friends and mentors I would send things to, and, you know, I, I Harry was just that one person who could just do it all. You know, he was an absolutely remarkable editor in so in every conceivable way you know he could do it all he really could i mean he was a great great text editor and amazing to talk about ideas with he he understood about presentation about pictures about headlines about i mean he was really an extraordinary talent and i had him all to myself so it was a great gift for all those years i mean it sounds so rare and a description of the ideal marriage i mean can't imagine that that is very normal no well you know he was he was a very buoyant harry and he had this incredible positive energy is that what you love most about him his um optimism his optimism absolutely he never i mean he just was an incredibly optimistic without being annoying he was hilariously funny to be with and always but he just was optimistic his his outlook on the world was was positive you know i mean he, and, and if he felt depressed he would just work you know work for him was his huge therapy yeah and were you very yin and yang? Were were you the pessimist to his optimism? Well, I'm. I was much more sort of insecure, really. I mean, I needed a lot more, sort of bolstering up, 
than he ever than he did. He was he was my shoulder to cry. I mean, I you know I I did a huge amount of supporting of him, but not. I mean, he was not. He was very self sufficient, Harry, uh, and so he didn't require me to sort of run around, sort of mopping him up, you know. But I need I needed quite a lot of mopping up a lot, <laughs> but he always supplied it, and he was wonderful. And and Tina, I mean, we always talk about sort of juggling and women, but you arrived in New York. It was a new marriage, a new place. This extraordinary job. You took um, Vanity Fair from, I think, a circulation of 200,000 to 2 million, I think. 1.2, actually. 1.2 million in mm-hmm. seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, then then there was the, the New Yorker, which uh, where you increased the sales, I think, 40, 145%. Oh my yes. God, you had two children. One of them needed more help with um, yes. Asperger's. You had three stepchildren. My goodness! I mean, what's your, what is your coping mechanism? <laughs> this sounds extraordinary. How are you? You really are the dynamo. No, no. I mean, I was. I was. Well, look. I mean, uh, one thing I did do, you know, when I was off with the New Yorker, which went meant moving from a monthly to a weekly, which meant even more pressure. Uh, was I persuaded my wonderful parents to come and live with across the landing from our apartment in New York. And they came from England with enormous sort of supportive, you know, immediacy. And we got this apartment for them and there they lived. And and so when my children came home on the school bus, they would go straight into their grandparents, which was really a wonderful support. I mean, I, it is by far the best thing you can imagine for the children. So you'd say that the bedrock of your life has always been family and you talk very yes. affectionately about your parents and I'm very interested in your mother I think she, you just she 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 has Iraqi roots you know it's funny this sort of got into the press basically I went to a, a dinner where beforehand you could submit your DNA because the person who was running it had you know links to this big DNA bank and he said I'm going to do a DNA test on all the guests so it was a, so we did a DNA test and the DNA test came back that there was a there was Iraqi genes in there but I mean from my mother's side but I mean, there was no understanding of that in you know in her pedigree or life. I mean, she she was raised in England. She was English. Her mother was Irish. Her father had come from Germany. So somewhere in that genetic code, there was an, something Iraqi. But no, she wasn't in that sense. No, she was not. But she was very beautiful and dark. I mean, she looked like uh, Maria Callas. So I could imagine that somewhere along the lines, there had been some you know Iraqi romance between one of her ancestors. <laughs> And did you get their drive? Did you get their, your sense of drive from them? Maybe, probably, yes. My father was a film producer and he was always, you know, which, by the way, is quite like being an editor. You know, he, he was always catalyzing projects. You know, I mean, if you're, an, if you're, a, if you're a producer, you, you're the one who gets it all going and, you, and you, you, you know, everybody depends on you and you're a self-starter and you get stuff done. So, I mean, in that sense, he was, he was a very, you know, certainly had a lot of drive. And my mother just had this great energy and 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 wit, and she was, uh, you know, she was she was a homemaker. She started uh, her early career. She met my father because she was uh, uh, an executive assistant on Laurence Olivier's films at Pinewood Studios, and you know they they had a wonderful, fun, creative life actually, where they were always entertaining actors and producers and directors. They certainly were the, they certainly gave me my my enjoyment of very sort of eclectic entertaining. I have to say, which I've always loved doing. Because the house was always full of writers and actors and directors and producers and so on, which I, I, you know, is what I grew up with, the atmosphere I grew up in. Great background, actually, for a magazine editor, because you wind up with a lot of very interesting, fun people in your Rolodex. 
So yes, they then my parents. It was it was a very creative family. My brother was also a film producer. So yeah, it was it was a it was a um, colourful family. I would say. Yeah, as as an editor, you specialised in putting unusual people together, didn't you? Did, did it ever backfire? Did you ever have any total casualties where you put the wrong people next to each other and there'd be a fight? Probably all the time. But you know, I have a huge. I, I love the whole sort of high-low mix, you know, I really do. I mean, my mother literally, she used to invite, she was a very good friend of Dame Rebecca West, but she was, they were, my father was also a very good friend of Benny Hill. <laughs> and she would be quite, you know, uh, shameless about inviting them to the same dinner and, and, and they all got on very well. So, I, I mean, that I, was sort of my philosophy for editing too, was that sort of high-low mixture where you would use sort of Hollywood and glamour and those uh, commercial things as the sort of packaging and as the sort of a seduction point. And then you would be able to do inside all the things that you wanted people to read mixed up with it. So, for instance, you know, you might have a Demi Moore on the cover, but inside there would be an amazing piece uh, we commissioned uh, by uh, William Styron about depression, for instance, which was a hugely groundbreaking piece because no one had really, of his stature, had really sort of come out and talked about having depression. I was very proud of being able to do that at Vanity Fair because, you know, if you'd put that on the cover and you'd made that the lead sort of uh, for readers, they might well not have bought the magazine, but they bought the magazine because of the glamour and the sparkle of the cover. And then they found themselves inexorably being seduced into reading the uh, William Styron. Well, gosh, it's the spice of life, the mixture, isn't it? And I, I remember being deeply impressed by the fact that you managed to get Tom Stoppard, how on earth you you managed to get him to write about his Jewishness, and then which inspired him to do his last play, didn't it, Leopoldstadt? That was the very first issue of the of the doomed uh, project I did after the New Yorker Talk magazine. The first issue of that magazine uh, was really had was incredible stuff in it. Actually, I mean, we had an amazing piece about Hillary Clinton that actually was the first place that she'd ever talked about Bill Clinton's affair with Monica. So it was a huge, it was sort of just at the dawn of the internet and all that, but it was, you know, would, today would the word would have been viral, but it went unbelievably viral. But then we had Tom Stoppard writing about his Jewish roots, it's true, and it took him, you know, it was really the first time he'd done that, and it was absolutely the sort of, uh, the thread that that, that was, was finally played out with, with Leopold uh, Stad. But what made you, what gave you that inspiration? I think as an editor, you have to always be listening, you know, and I think, you know, if I have, if I'm good at something, it's it's that. It's like, you know, knowing a, a large mix of people and always being incredibly interested in what they're telling me. And so, and I and I remember it too. So I, I, I have got an elephant's memory for the stuff that makes people tick, if you know what I mean. So that I come back to them and say, you know, look, there's this thing's just happened and I know this interests you. And they'll go, oh my gosh, I'd love to do that. And they, I know they're going to want to do it because I know that that's actually what they're interested in. You know, I'm a huge believer in having people write about what really, really interests them, you know, and not foisting stories onto writers. I, ne I never have done that. I've never sort of foisted stories on writers. If they don't, if their eyes don't light up, it's not going to be good. That doesn't mean you can't persuade them sometimes to, do something they never would have done. In fact, I think it's important to push writers out of their comfort zones uh, and do things that they might not. But but it's always based for me on a hunch that this is really something they may not quite realise that they they should be doing, but they should. And I've had a lot of success with that actually over the years and been able to get writers to change direction, fr frankly. 
Yeah, you certainly have. I, I wish more editors were like that today. I'm, <laughs> but actually, speaking of comfort zones, when were you last out of your comfort zone? Oh God, I'm always out of my. I'm always out of my comfort zone, constantly. I mean, God, I'm always taking on things and then finding, what am I doing? This is so hard. <laughs> Starting, you know, with my book writing, and I'm doing this big convening in London in May. And I, you know, I think every day it's so difficult. You know, I've got to produce 16 panels. I've got people coming in from all over the world. I've got to produce a program. I've got to produce. It's all so difficult. But I think it's the fun of it is that the, uh, you know, I, I do like climbing the mountains, actually, the creative, the creative process does interest me a lot. And I'm much less interested in sort of once it's done, the sort of I'm not a good steward, let's put it that way. I get I get bored quite quickly. <laughs> you've you've got a, a short attention span. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you've always um you've always championed women, your your multi-platform women in the world. Do you think it's easier for us or for, for your daughter maybe in in this era post uh, Me Too? No, I don't actually. I think it's completely unchanged, as a matter of fact. I mean, look, you can, I think men can get away with less in terms of overt sexual harassment, but they're still running the world. <laughs> I mean, frankly, I, I realise that now I'm putting together this this convening and I'm thinking, you know, the choice of women in these big roles is so much smaller. I mean, I could fill the stage with men, you know, and don't, of course, and won't. But it's a far greater difficulty to find as many women in the roles as men, you know. Mm. And it makes you think again, hey, I thought this had changed, you know. But it hasn't much. I mean, it's better, I think, probably. And I think women, and I think young women have other very difficult challenges today. I mean, I think that the whole sort of collapse of uh, sort of how you meet people, you know, is, is, you know, now that they're sitting in their apartments all day Zooming, it's very isolated, you know, and I think I would have hated that. I mean, the Vanity Fair office was such a kind of HQ of cultural excitement. The idea that I'd be sitting on home on a computer screen, just like talking to a box instead of, you know, thrumming around as I would have been with like, you know, the Dominic Dunn's and the, you know, the fashion department and the, and the you know, all the wonderful writers and editors and art. I mean, it was such a great fun place to be that I actually feel sorry for the younger people who kind of think that going to the office is a depressing thing. I mean, it's to do, I suppose, with the places they work. But uh, I definitely, I mean, I definitely think they're missing out too on the serendipitous sort of encounters of an office. Gosh, you're so right. I mean, the serendipitous encounters and the 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 original ideas. Where do you get your ideas anymore? You 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 trawl the internet, but we, those sparks have gone. You don't. There's no originality at all. None at all. It's funny because COVID meant, of course, we all went very reclusive. And you know, New York has taken a long time to come back. A long time. But just in about the last two months, I've started to do something I've completely forgotten how to do, which was actually go to book parties. <laughs> People have started to have book parties. And I realize how many people you meet at book parties, actually, that are really interesting, right? I mean, it's, you know, I'm glad I am going to book parties because I'm sort of, it's the serendipitous encounter, right? It's the sort of somebody you didn't know or, you know, somebody who's connected to that book's topic that is somebody you never would have met on a Zoom. I mean, why would you? So, yeah, I think it's essential. It's where you get your ideas. I find it very refreshing to go out and about and you get ideas that way. 
so the editorial reflex has never left you really no no i mean i'm constantly uh, i'm constantly thinking that's a great story that's a great story that's a great story of course i don't have a platform now on which to place it but um i usually fire off emails to all my millions of writers who remain in my life and say <laughs> You should do this piece. Mm, but what about ageism in our world? We talk about racism and gender and, and class, but do you agree that people tend to be invisible after the age of 60 or 50? Totally. I think it's appalling. I, I mean, listen, I, I find it just, it's just maddening, frankly. I mean, I know so many incredibly vibrant women over sort of 55 who just, you know, who, who just feel remaindered, you know, actually, and yet they have so much, you know, to give, frankly. At the same time, I think that currently the British government's kind of fantasy, they're going to get people to come back to work. They don't seem to realize that they've driven the women out. So now they've decided to do other things. <laughs> and I think that it's their fault. I mean, you know, you can't now, having driven out all these older people and said, you know, we don't want anybody older. Uh, they're just not cool. They're, they're, you know, we only want young people. They're not interesting to us. Don't apply if you're over 50 or whatever. Okay, well, Everybody got the message and they went off and they did other things. Good for them. You know, after years of being kind of rather disrespected and uh, unregarded, now everybody wants them back. Well, you know, they're not going to get them back, in my <laughs> humble opinion. Sorry. <laughs> well, you look fantastic. Thank you. So do you, Catherine. No, <laughs> I've had a sleepless night. But you do look fantastic. What is the, what's the secret? You're obviously incredibly fit. You obviously don't. I'm not uh... incredibly fit at all. I'm sitting here in my huge pink sweater and my, you know, glasses on the end of a chain. No, I mean, I think, I think staying engaged is the only way to stay young. You know, mm. it's doing things all the time, getting out of your comfort zone and doing things, different mm. things. And I think that's the thing that kept Harry so young. He was so young for his age, you know, and and, uh, and right to the very end. I mean, he was 92 when he died. And, you know, he died in September of 2020. But in June, he was interviewing Al Gore on a Zoom. Extraordinary man. So, I mean, he never he never lost his, his kind of uh, sharpness, really, until the yeah. last couple of months. But that was that he was incredibly physically fit. You know, he used to swim every day. I try to do a lot of walking. I mean, the streets of New York are my sort of gym. You know, I, I, I walk and walk and walk. That's great. And you've got a little puppy. Well, my daughter's bulldog, who I co-parent, who I'm obsessed with. She's so divine. And I mean, I never thought I could be a doggy person, but she is the most glorious bulldog. And I was actually interested to see today that French bulldogs have become the f most popular breed now in America. But, you know, ours is an English bulldog. So she was a little bit upset about that and was saying, you know, Oscar's so French. You know, she, she didn't like that. But... Uh, Bulldogs are heaven. So at uh, the Queen, our hero, the Queen, obviously said that, you know, you're as old as you feel. How old do you feel this morning? Oh, I feel about 42. <laughs> That's <so good. laughs> Until I look in the mirror, where you just, you know, because I'm in trouble with getting older, you just work twice as hard to look half as good, you know. Yeah, it's a, it's a terrible ball. Are you given to nostalgia, to looking back or not really? No, not really. Not at all. No, I don't look back, actually. In fact, I get irritated with, with, you know, sort of people who bang on about the great old days, you know, honestly. You and Nicky Haslam on his little tea towels, I think he says nostalgia and, and tortured topiary and loving your mother are in the same category of common. <laughs> <laughs> he's so wonderful, Nicky. I do yeah. love him. I hope he's invited to the coronation. And if he's not, he should be. Mm. And uh, so, will you be coming? Obviously, you'll be coming. Well, I'm. I you know I'm CBS's sort of 
coronation. <laughs> I mean, I did the, the funeral for them. So they have to decide what they want to do first, whether they were, you know, there's much less interest here, I have to say. I'm beginning to get slightly irritated at how little interest there is in the coronation in America. Basically, they're not remotely interested in Charles and Camilla is the sad part. <laughs> That's so sad. <laughs> so sorry to tell you. That is quite sad. As a transatlantica, what do you miss when you're in America? What do you miss about England? Well, the thing is that when you when you are living here, I find that, you know, transatlantica, I call it, is the place I live, which is, you know, I miss... I love American energy, American entrepreneurialism, you know, American optimism, American sort of large scopism. But I terribly miss English irony, the rain, <laughs> uh, you know, English humor, English literary culture. I still think there is a literary culture in England. There really isn't in America anymore at all. There just isn't. I miss English newspapers, the much maligned English newspapers, you know, thin though they may be, I actually think they're wildly entertaining and always have. I mean, I even subscribe to The Spectator and The New Statesman, which are the only magazines I now subscribe to. So I, I miss a lot about England and I miss the countryside most. I mean, come, come June, I'm really fretting, you know, for the English countryside, terribly fretting. Maybe you will come back for good, Tina. Well, who knows? I don't know. I think at the same time, I am cognizant of the fact that, as you well said, nothing seems to be working very much to lure me back. But, it, you know, it's very I, I love coming. I have a wonderful time. And I think in, English entertaining is the best because people really know how to mix it up in a very informal, fun way. You know, it's a very much more informal sitting in people's, you know, somebody cooking dinner while you're all sitting around the table is really, really fun. And you don't get much of that here. No, I mean, I suppose no matter what I noticed in New York more than ever is that really it's all about the agenda. It's transactional. Completely, completely. And I mean, it's expensive it and the sort of it's unbelievable. A lot of people have left New York, too. I mean, you know, during COVID, all the kind of fancy people went to Miami and Palm Beach and everybody else kind of fled upstate to their houses in, you know, their bat rural bat caves in, you know, in Connecticut and upstate New York and stuff. So actually, New York has, has is much less buzzy than it was. It's beginning, you know, that you can still have a good time, but it's much less buzzy, I would say. Yeah. So what next for you, do you think? I, I mean, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm sort of thinking about our next book. I thought after I've done finished this event in May, I'm going to kind of retreat to my house at the beach <laughs> and uh, decide what to write next. I, I, I sort of you know, I, I'd like to do something that's a complete uh, sort of head changer, as it were, after the Palace Papers, even if I return to the royals, uh, you know, at the next, shall we say, decisive moment <laughs> in the monarchy. I'll, I'm sort of just thinking a little bit, just cogitating on what, what else I could do and various ideas which I haven't landed on. Why don't you write your memoirs? Well, you know, it's. I guess it's because, again, it's about diving into the past, you know, and you feel, I just wonder whether that's going to be ultimately something I don't really want to spend my days doing right now. Well, you know. somebody, else, somebody else will write them, won't they, for you? I well, mean, no, I'm not going to let that happen. <laughs> <laughs> I will do them, but I'm not sure whether it will be now. Well, whatever you do next, you'll do it with a verve and style and wit. And I can't wait to see you when you next come here. Thank you. Goodbye and thank you for listening to The Third Act. This is the last episode of Series 2, but I promise you we'll be back with more, so please don't go away. And tell us what you've liked on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts. 
Thank you to Orions for hosting the series and for the wonderfully conducive atmosphere of creativity and support that being in these Chelsea residences come club engenders. Personally speaking, I've so enjoyed the honesty and directness of my guests, the looking back reflectively of the highs and lows of lives well lived as much as the looking forward to horizons new. And as we know, horizons matter. I'm Catherine Fairweather, and this was the third act.